Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us, and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. So this morning, as we jump into the passage of Scripture, normally I would do a sermon intro, like a story or something to try to grab your attention and, and help you focus in on the passage of Scripture, but I'm pretty certain that just reading the passage of Scripture is going to have you on the edge of your couch, especially if you're a woman. So I don't think today needs any kind of intro. Let's just get right into the passage. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And some of you who read ahead know why I'm sweating bullets up here about this particular passage of Scripture. So while you're finding 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, let me go ahead and warn you that what we're going to read this morning is very controversial stuff. In fact, if we were not going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through First and Second Timothy, I don't think I would have the backbone or the gumption to preach on this particular passage of Scripture. But it's in the Bible. So I'm guessing I should probably read it and deal with it and pray that I still have a job when this sermon is over. Let's go ahead and read it. First Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Here's what it says. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now you thought that was bad. We keep on going. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right, I read the passage. Let's go ahead and take the Lord's Supper. I don't, I don't think I want to deal with this because it is so explosive of material. And, and were it not for the fact that I would lose every single female who's a part of Fielder Church if I didn't deal with this because you all think Paul is a sexist and, and you, don't want to, you don't know what our church teaches, I'm going to go ahead and dig in this passage. Plus, six of the eight people who live in my home are female. So I have to deal with what Paul is saying here. But, but my mama didn't raise no fool. And I have gray hair for a reason, because I've been around the block enough times to know that I shouldn't try to tackle this on my own. So I, cons- I decided to consult with the, uh, the highest authority in womanhood I know, my wife, Virginia, and she's going to actually come help me teach this passage of scripture. So Virginia, why don't you come on up here? We have matching Bibles and everything. It's so cute. <laughs> and we are going to teach this passage of scripture together and hope it goes well. So thanks for being here. I'm glad <laughs> you're by my side for this one. <laughs> Now, now, before we really dive into the nitty-gritty of what all is going on in this passage, I think it's probably helpful that we, we prime the pump a little bit and deal with the less abrasive part of this passage, verses 8 through 10. Now, what you got to understand is the context. Verses 8 through 10 are really talking about the attitude of prayer. Last week, when we started in chapter 2, we, we began the discussion about Paul's call for the church to pray, to pray specifically for kings and those who are in high positions. And, and if you were with us last week, then we actually stopped and we prayed for the president, governor, mayor, city leaders, and uh, educational leaders, and business leaders, and spiritual leaders as a part of putting that into practice. So last week, Paul told us what to pray for. This week, he tells us the attitude of the heart when we pray. 
and he deals with both men and women in verses 8 through 10. So, Virginia, why don't you read that for us again, verses 8 through 10, so we can focus in on that. Okay. I desire then that at every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So I'm just curious, you know, after, after reading that, like, how does that make you feel? It's kind of a dangerous question. <laughs> um, well, it really gets under my skin, to be honest with you, because Paul really does come off as a sexist, because in this, he's addressing men's attitudes, but he's addressing how women are clothed. And I still feel like that happens today, so it really bothers me. Yeah. But as we prepared for this, I felt like there's more than what really meets the eye. I just kind of have to you know, relax that defensive posture so that I can learn from it. Which I think is true for, for many of the female audience. Absolutely. Like it's gonna be just a, a initial like block out everything Paul has to say. But I really think as we studied this, Paul is not, not being sexist. He's not saying, oh, I'm, I'm concerned with men's attitude and only women's appearance. He's actually dealing with attitude on both sides. It's just, he's recognizing men have different heart issues than women. And so what he does in verse eight is he deals with the men because he knows men are from Mars. And then in verses nine and 10, he deals with women because he knows women are from Venus. He's, he's recognizing God created them uniquely and differently. So I'm gonna tackle verse eight. I'm gonna let you tackle verses nine and 10 as he talks about the heart issue of women. But when you go back to verse eight, He's talking to men and what really affects their heart when he says, you know, I want men in every place to pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, I know I'm about to generalize and generalizing can be very dangerous. But what I think Paul is alluding to here is the, the nature typically of men to be uh, assertive and sometimes domineering which makes them combative and argumentative yes. and destructive. Yes. And yeah, you know that to be true because that's true of me. Like, you know, that whole fight or flight thing in me, 99 out of a hundred times is fight. It's just always the way that I'm created and wired. And I think, I think God made men that way for a reason. It wasn't a mistake. He wanted to create men to be protectors of their families and providers for their families. And that requires sometimes an assertiveness mm -hmm. and a protectiveness and, and even a willing to stand up and be bold. But when that's left unchecked, it turns into anger. And quarreling, and, and I confess that I struggle with these things, with anger and with uh, being overly competitive, competitive and, and even uh, combative with others. Mm. And I think Paul is saying, men, I know that this is a temptation of yours, but instead of fighting, instead of having anger and quarreling, he says, I want you to lift holy hands when you pray. Now, he wasn't really talking about the posture of hands because every Jew prayed with hands up in the air. So the descriptive part wasn't the hands lifted up, it was the holy hands lifted up. And what he's talking about is your heart, when you lift your hands, is important. You have to be holy. You have to come to the recognition that you are sinful and broken and made holy by who Christ is. And so he's saying, men, do away with your pride. Do away with your arrogance. Do away with your competitiveness and humble yourself before God when you pray. So that's how he's dealing with men's issues here. But you see in verses 9 and 10, he's dealing with a totally different set of issues with, with women. And I, Virginia, I think it'd be better for you to explain what's going on sure. here. So... I think we are really getting a clear picture here of how men and women are created differently and how that really plays out in life. So women, I'm gonna generalize as well, they have a completely different uh, set of uh, natural strengths. And so two that I think a lot of women have are compassion and empathy. And these are really good characteristics. We have the ability to be aware of how others are thinking and how they're feeling, which is really important. Yeah. 
However, there is a dangerous side to that because it makes us vulnerable that we then begin to change how we might present ourselves to others because we want to try to um, influence their perceptions of us. We struggle because we want to be noticed, we want to be known, and I think that's really what Paul's addressing here and the dangers that can come alongside of that because the the ways that we express the need to be noticed can actually be quite harmful. Yeah, that, that desire for attention can really yes. grab your heart and, and be destructive in certain yes. ways. And he specifically dealt with two of them here. And at the beginning, it's not really apparent uh, that it's really about the heart, but it is a heart issue, just yeah. like for the guys. So uh, Paul talked about how women were dressing, which, you know, that's the one that got under my skin, and um, also self-promotion, flaunting things. So he began with talking about how the women were dressed immodestly. So in Ephesus, in that time, there was a temple to the goddess Artemis, and it was a very sexualized place. And so as a result, the way that women dressed, it kind of bled into every realm of that city. So the women were coming to church, and they were dressed very provocatively and it was acceptable to the Gentiles, to the outside world. But as Christians, we really should be carrying ourselves differently. And so Paul's pointing out the dangers in what the women are doing. It's something I think we still struggle with today. I feel like uh, from a young age, women, girls are inundated with images of women who are very sexualized and that we're taught from a young age that the appropriate way to grab a man's attention is by how we dress, not by our hearts. And Paul is wanting us to fight against that. I mean, it's a conversation we have all the time with our daughters and why we should be modest and that it's a heart issue and it's a, uh, it's a way for us to show our devotion to the Lord. Yeah, and you know, we rob attention from Christ when we're yes. trying to draw attention to ourselves. And, and we've got to guard against it, I think is what Paul is saying. So, absolutely. The second thing that he talked about is self-promotion. He didn't use those words. Those are my words because as I studied this, this is what I saw. When he talked about in verse nine, women adorning themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. What was happening, he was speaking to the women there because they were coming to church and their hair was done up elaborately in braids. They had... Um, gold, they had very expensive jewelry. So I don't think Paul's telling me today that I can't braid my hair, I can't wear jewelry, because if so, I've blown it out the water this week, braided my hair, braided George's hair, I wear earrings, I have earrings on right now. I don't think I'm sinning by doing this. Paul was speaking directly to the ladies in that time because what they were doing is they were flaunting their status. They were flaunting their wealth. They were trying to promote their image to everybody around them. Which again is drawing attention to self. Absolutely, which Christ. is a hard issue. Yeah. And some even believe that the women would actually weave gold like into their hair. So it's not something that we see today, but as I was studying for this, I realized that it's something I've struggled with in my own life because I feel like I I try to weave gold into the picture that I present to everybody. I want to have a picture-perfect life when I post on social media, on Facebook. I carefully look at anything that I might post because I want it to reflect well on me as a mother, as a wife. I want it to reflect well on Jason. So then it becomes about how I am perceived and about the attention that I receive mm -hmm. from it. And Paul is guarding, uh, wanting us to guard our hearts against that and 
saying, it's not about you, it's about the good works if you profess godliness. We see it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, when we're told to live our way, our, our lives differently. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That is what this is addressing. Yeah, so isn't that crazy? We do good works and yet God gets the attention. Yes. God gets the glory. And, and Paul is saying, that's why in verse 10, we, we do good works for, yes. for women instead of anything else so that he gets the attention. Now you said something that was pretty interesting that I thought uh, might need to be commented on because <laughs> maybe you're sitting here after she said, well, I don't think I'm sinning if I braid my hair or wear, and, earrings. Uh, or wear earrings. And you're going, well, why do you just get to pick and choose? Like it's okay for you and not for you. And, and it sounds real subjective. And, and, and I get, I actually completely agree with my wife because you know, we talked about this before we came up here today. But I agree with her, but it brings up a really important principle of right interpretation of the Bible. So I'm gonna press you with a theological word, it's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the, the, the science and study of rightly interpreting the scriptures. And there's a hermeneutical principle, an interpretive principle that says that the way you distinguish between which command is still relevant today and which command is no longer relevant, in other words, it was just in a different context, is what truth that command is based on. So if that command is based on a context issue, then that command can be done away with when that context changes. But if that command is based on a timeless truth, then that command pervades in every single culture, every single place. So the braided hair is speaking to, it's based on a, an issue in yes. that culture. And so that command can be done away with. It doesn't have the same effect. There are a lot of these in the Bible, by the way. The command not to kill somebody whenever they, they break the Sabbath, or it was to kill people if they break the Sabbath, put them to death, doesn't exist today. And praise the Lord, because be everybody would be dead. We all break the Sabbath. That was from a specific issue in a context when the nation of Israel was starting out. Or there's a command that if there's some mold growing in your house, you gotta tear down the whole house. Well, praise the Lord, if you find a little bit of mold in your house, you don't have to tear it down. Unless it's black mold, then you gotta tear the whole thing down. But other than that, we have means of scientifically you know, creating chemicals that can do away with the mold. That was a context issue, and therefore that command is no longer relevant today. Now maybe the principle is, but the command isn't. But there are many commands in the Bible that are based on timeless truths. For example, in the New Testament, when it says the command that you, if you believe you're supposed to mm -hmm. repent and be baptized, that command is based on the timeless truth of the gospel of Jesus. That when you believe in Christ, because of what the gospel is, we're supposed to repent of our sin and place our faith in Christ and be baptized. Well, that command, since it's based on a timeless truth, is applicable in any moment to any person throughout time, in history, everywhere in the world. That's how you distinguish between the two. And, and sometimes it gets complicated to know what it's based on, but as a general rule, that's the right way to interpret and distinguish which commands we can do away with and which commands we have to maintain. Now, maybe you're wondering why I'm giving you a lesson in hermeneutics. Well, there's a really important reason why, because we're about to jump into verses 11 through 15. And without this understanding of how to interpret, it becomes very hard to know what Paul is actually teaching us. Because I believe in these verses, there are some things that we get to throw out the window, and there are certain things that we have to maintain based on that principle of right interpretation. So I'm going to reread verses 11 through 15, and then I'm going to pray like crazy <laughs> that this goes well. Here's what it says. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. <laughs> For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Holy moly. Virginia, go ahead and tell them what it means. 
Whoa, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I'm sorry. What happened to the assertiveness and yeah. you know this need to dominate? He wants to keep his job, so it's uh, it's gone bye bye. All right. Well, thanks a lot. So yeah, you got this, baby. Okay, we'll see. We will see. So um, as I read this, when I'm able to kind of you know calm down about the emotions that well up, uh, there really is more than meets the eye here. I know that Paul is not saying that women are not supposed to talk in church, that they can't teach, and that they're less than a man. And I know for sure he's not saying that the only good thing that a woman can do is give birth to children. Yeah, that's a great thing, but it's not the only thing. Exactly, exactly. Paul, even though it's hard to see this, really was light years ahead of the people around him in the fact that he really did have plans and want women to be lifted up. You look at Jesus and who he was and and who he taught and the way he taught and treated women was radically different, which I think actually brings us to another interpretive principle that's really important when you come to rightly view scripture. You must view every portion of scripture in light of the whole Bible. You, You can't just eisegete. You can't just take a small piece of it and then pull that one out. And by the way, there have been so many abuses from men who have taken this particular passage of scripture, pulled it out and said, this is what it's saying. Not in light of the entire Bible. They have oppressed women and they have come down hard in unbiblical and unhealthy ways to wrongly limit women when the Bible is not limiting women. So we must be cautious not to do that. Because if you look at the Bible, the the whole Testament, uh, both old and new, it speaks very differently about women. Paul cannot be telling women that they always have to be quiet. They can never speak up in church because if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul explains to women how they're supposed to pray and prophesy when the church gathers together. In other words, when you look at the whole Bible, you realize Paul doesn't mean this holistically for women. They can never talk in church. On top of that, if you read Timothy, 2 Timothy, Paul himself actually encourages women teaching. He says, great job, Eunice, for teaching Timothy and Lois, his grandmother, for teaching Timothy. So he's praising them for teaching Timothy in a formalized way. So he's not saying women should never teach. And if you look at the Old Testament, you see some incredible, remarkable women. You've got Deborah, you've got Esther, You've got this lady named Huldah, the prophetess. If you don't know who Huldah is, you should go read her story. Second Kings chapter 22, that woman was sharp, man. She was leading people around because she was used by God. Hmm. Uh, all over the scriptures, you see incredibly beautiful, strong women doing great things, which by the way, my girls who are watching this, God is saying he can use you too. There, right. there aren't limits and we shouldn't put unneeded limits upon women when the scriptures don't do it. So I think we've got to be really cautious as we interpret this, that we understand holistically how the Bible speaks about women. And when we look at the whole, then we can zero in specifically on the context in Ephesus that Paul is dealing with when he wrote to Timothy. Now, maybe you weren't here in the first week, but this letter is written to, Paul, to Timothy, from Paul to Timothy, for the church, as you heard Virginia say, in Ephesus. So it's a very specific context. Now, in first century Ephesus, the women there had no access to education no access to any kind of Bible training whatsoever. If they were Jewish, they were forbidden from being trained by the rabbis. Only boys and men were allowed to be trained by rabbis. So they had no formal education whatsoever. If they were Greek, very few women ever got to have any kind of real education. They were were left in ignorance. Now that cultural phenomenon is important because that meant they wouldn't have the biblical understanding to be able to guard against false doctrine. Mm. Now you go all the way back to when we dealt with 1 Timothy chapter one, The whole letter was written to Timothy telling Timothy, guard against false doctrine. There were false teachers in Ephesus who were spreading bad doctrine and he's saying, you need to stamp it out. 
Now, the reason that matters is because these women who have no education, which by the way, is not true today. There are so many women. My wife's got Absolutely. a college degree. So many of you do. There are many women who've got great theological degrees, PhDs in theology, very different context. But back in Ephesus, they didn't have any of that stuff. And so here are these false teachers. These women have no capacity to distinguish whether this is truth or not. So they're susceptible to sharing false doctrine. Now, another thing you got to remember is back then they didn't have the New Testament the way we have the New Testament. It wasn't solidified into a canon yet, which meant that they didn't have any means of recognizing truth and falsehood other than the Old Testament. So here comes an elder or another person that's teaching false doctrine. These women hear it. They've got no filter to determine. And so they're very susceptible to being deceived and spreading that false doctrine. That's actually why he went into the story of Adam and Eve. He's going into that and talking about how Eve was deceived because that was the issue in Ephesus. Now, I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you. I, I have wrongly interpreted this for the majority of my life because I read this and I'm almost ashamed to admit it. Uh, this was uh, pre-five daughters. But uh, <laughs> you know, when I, when I read this and it says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. It almost sounds like Paul is saying like women are just more gullible. They're just more easily deceived. Yes, this is why I've always thought he was a sexist. And, and what I've come to realize is that's not at all why he told the story of Adam and Eve. If you go back to Genesis, where this whole thing comes, what you realize is the reason why Eve was deceived wasn't because she was gullible. Mm. It was because she didn't have access to the direct revelation from God. It was in chapter two that God told Adam, not Eve, he told Adam, Eve wasn't even born yet. He says, you can eat from all the trees, just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve, the only way she knew that command was through Adam. Mm -hmm. And if you know anything about Genesis chapter three, apparently Adam didn't do a great job transmitting it because he said, not only can you not eat it, you can't even touch it. So he's adding a law around the law because he's not transmitting it well. So Eve doesn't have direct access to the revelation of God. And because of it, she's more susceptible. So who does Satan go to? Satan goes to the woman because he knows she is more easily deceived because she didn't have direct revelation from God. But if you think about the story, who's really the greater sinner? Because Eve, yeah, she disobeys her husband, but who does Adam disobey? God himself. The real loser in this one, the real transgressor is Adam. So when Paul talks about this story, he's not putting down Eve. He's not saying she's weak, she's gullible, she's so easily fooled. He's just recognizing she didn't have access to the revelation of God. And, and what you hinted at, I think is important. Actually, Paul had a very high view of women, actually wanted to give them opportunities. He did, he wanted them to learn. He wanted them to learn in quietness and submissiveness, but he wanted them to learn and he encouraged that, which went against most men's perspective in that time. They didn't want women to learn. They wanted them to stay ignorant because they wanted to have power and control over them. And Paul was, was completely the opposite, as was Jesus. Yeah. Um, so it was eye-opening for me to learn that as I studied these verses. And, and even though, though, he talks about their equality in yes. personhood, I, I still think it's odd how he can juxtapose those two are beautiful, the way he can balance yes. the difference in role with the sameness and value. Yeah, because he never suggested that women were gonna have an equal role, uh, but he was lifting them up regardless. And I think that's part of the reason he actually went back and referenced Adam and Eve, because he said Adam was formed first and then Eve. Which actually is a really weird verse when you, when you it read is. it. Like, why, why does he, who cares whether Adam came first and I, then Eve? I mean, that was my response as always. So, <laughs> uh, but in Jewish culture, the firstborn son had a very important, 
important uh, God-given role. He was expected to be the leader of their house. He was expected to be the main decision maker for their family. He was expected to step into this role. And that's what Paul is referencing because men are supposed to step into that role in the church as the firstborn. Yeah, so it's, it's actually, uh, it's called the, the rule of primogeniture. So another big pre- word. Yeah, another big word. I'm trying to impress you here. Prima <laughs> means first and geniture means generated. So the first generated, the first one to come was Adam. So man came first and then woman. And because of this rule of primogeniture, therefore the first one to come has been given a, a seat of authority. Yes. So they have different roles, but it doesn't mean the firstborn is more valuable than the no. secondborn or thirdborn, just has a different role different. to play which I think you see this, this idea of equal value, but different roles, even in God himself. There's a doctrine called the Trinity. Uh, you know, you Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in the Trinity, they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. One is not worth more than the other, but they play different roles. Jesus submits to the Father. In fact, go read the Gospel of John if you have it. You see how many times Jesus says, I only do what the Father has told me to do. His role is to submit to the Father. The Spirit, when you read the New Testament, you discover submits to the Son and to the Father. So it it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is less than, like, oh, that poor little Holy Spirit over there. No, he's God. But he has a different role, equal in value, different roles, and they complement each other. This is what you call complementarian theology. It is equal value, but different roles that complement one another, which honestly is the same thing in marriage too, where you you see that same principle playing out in Ephesians. And, and it's been a difficult one for us to wrestle with. It has. I'm going to read it really quickly. I'm going to find it. It's Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 25. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So as um, Jason and I were engaged and talking about marriage and what marriage was gonna look like, because he was already, you know, so holy, he was like, let's go to the Bible, let's look and let's read these verses in Ephesians. And uh, I got mad when he started talking about using the word submission or being submissive in our well, in our marriage I wasn't relationship. using the words, they were in the Bible. Whatever. <laughs> we were just he reading it together. He sent me there on purpose. So, yes, I did. I struggled. The word submissiveness or the word to submit, it it bugged me. I was very independent. I was 23 or 24 at this time. I'd been on my own for a long time, lived in another country by myself. I was raised surrounded by strong, independent women on both sides of my family. And so the idea of submitting to somebody, submitting to a man, I couldn't imagine doing it. And so we struggled. We had very hard conversations about it. And then I really, really made the situation worse when I told him that I thought, I might not take his last name. I literally thought his head might explode. I'm Latino. This is a big deal for me. And these were all phone calls because he was in Argentina and I was in the States. Uh, So it was hard. But after a lot of hard conversations with Jason, a lot of searching my heart, looking through scripture and praying and just crying out to God and saying, what is this supposed to look like? How can I be married to somebody that I... I am supposed to submit to when I don't believe that. And God truly transformed my heart, which 
is miraculous. And I know my parents are probably, you know, as they watch this, they're happy to hear it because I don't think they ever thought I would submit to anybody. (laughs) But what I finally ultimately realized was that by submitting to Jason, I was submitting to God because that was the role I was called to in this relationship. Jason is the, the head. He's the leader of our household. And I willingly submit to him because I know God has placed him in that role for a reason. I don't take it lightly. He doesn't take it lightly. He's made it clear that he knows he's gonna be held accountable for the way that he leads our family. So it is joyful for me to be submissive to him and to trust him in this. And the thing is, Jason and I, we don't have equal roles, but we are equal. We both are important. We have different roles. And different isn't bad, you guys and ladies. I really want you to hear this. Different is just different. And I I think... The, that truth, that principle, which is hard to swallow in marriage. And we do premarital counseling, something we talk about a lot. And it's hard for everybody to swallow because it just doesn't sound right. Yet God has said in my infinite wisdom, here's how I want to create it. Different roles so that you can be together. And if he does this in marriage, it's not a hard transition to see that he's going to do it in the church as well. Yes. I, I do believe the timeless principle God has given us in this, ultimately, when you go to 1 Timothy 2, is that the man is supposed to lead the church. Yes. I think that part isn't contextually driven. It's actually based back on the order of primogeniture. Like we said before, Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's a timeless truth. And therefore this command based on a timeless truth pervades. Now, I know this is not politically correct to say this kind of thing because who wants to hear this? And it's not a warm and fuzzy thing. But I think when you look at verse 12, it's really where you get at. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, I'm gonna tell you what I don't think this means, and I'm gonna try to explain it to you. I don't think this means that women should never teach in the church, which you're going, well, you just said that was based on a timeless truth. Well, I I think these two go together, and it's really important to understand how they do. I think the real thing he's focusing on is the exercising of authority, and the role of teaching is about authority in this context, because what you have to remember, like I said before, they did not have the New Testament. Mm. So right now, today, a woman can come and share my wife standing right next to me, <laughs> teaching from the New Testament along with me because the authority she's coming under is not her own. It's under the scriptures. That's right. She's saying, this is what the word of God says. We now have an authority that a woman can come under and a man can come under. And so we can teach from that authority. And she has the educated capacity to be able to read this and even protect against false doctrine. She's not in the same context. And so I believe that there is great permission and freedom for women to teach inside the church. But what I don't think it's saying is therefore women should lead in the church. I think this scripture is calling men to that role of leadership. And I think it really comes down to that word authority, to exercise authority. It's an unusual Greek word. It's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. It's a authentineo. It's, it's where the word authenticate comes from. And it really has to do with the fact that when someone taught, that Greek word for teach is didasko, that in this context was declaring authenticating doctrine. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament, so whoever taught in this role is exercising authority. Mm. And therefore, in this context, he's saying, don't teach because you're exercising, you're authenticating a faith that you're not allowed to authenticate because that role is meant for the one who received direct revelation from God, which were the apostles who were all men. And so this is saying, men, I've called you to lead. Women, I've called you to serve an incredibly important capacity in the church, but not to lead. I know, I know there are some of you right now and you are frustrated with me for saying that. And you think that's so unfair and not right. And I want to make sure you hear me clearly when I say this. I am not at all saying this means women are less than or women don't have an incredible contribution to the church. Because here's the truth, something I have learned from living with this woman right here. 
Women are incredible additions to the church. And they, they are so much more gifted than men in some of the very things that men are called to do. I mean, you, you want to talk just statistics. Women read the Bible more than men do, statistically speaking. They go to church more often than men do. They are much more empathetic, much more intuitive. Yes. Uh, they are much more relational in nature, mm -hmm. much more adapt at con conversing and speaking, much better looking. Amen. You can see that right now. <laughs> Women have so much going for them that are some of the very things that you want in a pastor to which you might be going, well, then why in the world shouldn't a woman be pastoring? Why does it need to be a man? In the crazy wisdom of God, he has determined that though all that may be true, I want to use what is weak to show my power because yes. my power is made perfect in weakness. Amen. And so for the call, you're not supposed to amen that. <laughs> for, the, for the call of the man to lead is because he's weak enough to give God glory in it. That's right. And let me say this too. For a man to lead is not about power. Mm. It is about sacrifice. Leadership for a man is about dying. Mm -hmm. That's the very thing that Christ taught us. You know, when you, when you read Ephesians 5, he said clearly, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved, loved the, the church, church and gave himself up for it. In other words, the example of leadership that Jesus gave men is you want to lead the church, die for the church, sacrifice everything for the church. Mm -hmm. and, and I just, I want you to hear this. As your pastor, I feel this weight. I feel like God has told me that my job is to come in and lead the flock and be willing to die for the flock, to be willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the flock, yes. because that's what he's called me to do. And for whatever reason, in God's sovereignty, he said, men, I'm calling you to this. I don't want that burden upon women. I'm putting this upon you men. That's what I think Paul is saying here. So praise the Lord. I think I've survived it all. I think we're done. Uh, let's move on to the Lord's Supper. Wait, and wait, wait, wait. You totally skipped over that last verse. I don't, I don't think I did. Yes, no, you did. What verse is that? Verse 15. Uh-huh. Has to do with childbearing. You really want me to go there? Yes, I'm very curious about it. <laughs> all right, all right. Bye-bye job. It's nice knowing you. <laughs> well, maybe yeah, not, a, maybe it, not. This is a crazy passage, right? So, so she will be saved through childbearing. Almost like Paul is saying, barefoot and pregnant. That's all I want. Stop. And that is so messed up. So praise the Lord, I can tell you that's not what it means. The only problem is I can't really tell you what it does mean <laughs> because there's so much disagreement about that. So let me, let me go ahead and tell you what it does not mean. 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt, this does not mean that a woman is saved by giving birth to a child. The reason I know that is because that runs in the face of the gospel entirely. The whole message of the gospel is you are saved by grace through faith in yes. Christ Jesus. It is his finished work, not yours. And if the act of bearing children, a work that a female would do, earned them salvation, then the gospel isn't true. Therefore, that can't be true. Plus, how messed up would it be Seriously. that if a woman is struggling with infertility, now she has to go to hell because she can't bear a child? No, there's no way on God's green earth that's what this passage is teaching. That's really all I know for <laughs> sure. What it actually means is so debated. Now, I'm gonna give you my opinion based on what I studied because I actually had a little epiphany as I was studying this passage when I was reading it in the Greek. So if you were to read it more technically in the Greek, it says, yet she, she shall be saved uh, through the childbirth, which is a really odd way to say it, yet she will be saved through child, the childbirth, the, which is the definitive article, yeah. the childbirth. And it, it doesn't make sense until you remember this is in the context of Adam and Eve. And so there was a prophecy, the very first prophecy ever made back in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, it's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. And this was given in the context of the woman who is bearing the curse that now from, from now on, every time she bears a child, it will be painful. But he says in chapter three, verse 15 of Genesis, but one day the seed of woman will come 
who will crush the head of the serpent. Hmm. There is gonna be a child, the childbirth, who is gonna overcome Satan and make everything right. And then you fast forward a few thousand years and here you have Mary and here comes the childbirth. The Messiah is born and what does he do? He dies on a cross, raises from the grave and conquers Satan, fulfills it completely. Yes. And I think Paul is saying she will be saved through the childbirth, through the seed, the one who will conquer Satan through his death, burial and resurrection. And then when it says, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, that's not saying, yeah, you got Jesus and you got to work really hard at it. This is just saying that when you genuinely come to faith, yes your faith will persist. You will have a faith that will express itself in love and holiness and self-control. There will be fruit of the Spirit. You read all over the New Testament and it says that if you have a genuine faith, it will persevere. So that's what he's saying, I believe. He's saying women will be saved if they trust in the one who was born to die and be resurrected as long as they maintain their faith in him and they watch that develop who they are with love, holiness, and self-control. It's good you didn't skip it. I didn't skip it. Good, we got some good truth. But here's what's interesting. This is also true for every single man who's watching this. If you are a man, you are saved by the same That's grace, right. through the same faith, in the same Christ as every single woman. Let me tell you what that means. That means the ground at the foot of the cross is completely level. Man in here, woman in here, nor vice versa. We are all broken sinners bowing down in need of grace from yeah. Jesus. This is why men, if you're watching this, we have no place looking down at a woman ever, limiting a woman unnecessarily. Women are incredibly, beautifully created by God. And the gospel says we're broken human beings that need grace. That's why we shouldn't try to be competitive or controlling or domineering. We should be humble because we know what the gospel takes for us to be saved. And this is also women, why you don't have to try to vie. You know, it talks about the curse in Genesis 3 that the woman's gonna long for her position's husband, uh, for her husband's position, but the husband is gonna to be ruling over her. And, and it was talking about the curse of conflict. Mm -hmm. But when a woman realizes that I've been saved by grace, I don't yes. deserve anything, then it liberates her to exercise that grace to say, I'm, I'm willing to, to take whatever position God yes. gives me. At the end of the day, here's the truth. The truth is the gospel of Jesus is the only thing that can liberate you to have a right relationship yes. with somebody else. We talked about it in the context of marriage. The only way marriage works is when you both mutually humble yourselves and serve each other. And that's what the gospel does. Talked about that in the church, but that's true in your work relationships and your friendships and every single relationship you have. The only way peace will come to you is when you come to faith in the gospel, the one who was born to save you. And I believe there are many of you who are watching this and all you have right now is conflict after mm -hmm. conflict after conflict in your relationships, broken marriage, broken relationship with your kids, all these things going wrong. And the reason why is you haven't placed your faith yet in the child who was born and died and rose yes. again. But listen, if you want to experience the power of God in your life, it comes through faith in Christ Jesus. And I believe there's some of you watching this and you're ready to place your faith in Jesus. Listen, now, we want to partner with you. If you are ready today to place your faith in Jesus Christ, here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab your phone and I want you to text the word next step, just one word, next step to 94253. You see it right here in the bottom of your screen. Or you can go to filler.org slash next step. And you feel like it's a super brief form. I tried it out. It takes about a minute. I promise you, super fast. Let us know because we want to partner with you. We want to pray for you. We want to reach out to you. We want to send you a little gift to help you begin your journey with Christ Jesus. And we've had so many people who've taken us up on that offer and done it and begun their journey of faith in Christ. God may be saying that to you. If that's you, please, right now, take that step of faith. We want to hear from you. 
And if you're a believer, I just wanna say to you, whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, God created you for a specific purpose with a specific role on this earth. And ladies, I just wanna remind you that your worth comes solely from the grace and the mercy of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. He loved you so much that he died for you and his birth and his death give you your salvation. So my prayer is that that would be enough to motivate you to serve others regardless of what you think their perceptions might be of you or whether or not you think your position is fair. And men, let me say this as clear as I can. We have no right ever to use the position that God has given us to lord it over or domineer over anybody else. Like we said before, the example is Christ. And Christ's example is, I'm gonna bleed and die for these people to be saved. That's what leadership looks like. That's what manhood looks like, to be willing to bleed and die, to sacrifice everything for the sake of somebody else. So I can think of no better way to finish than by preparing our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're gonna have bread and we're gonna have a cup. And this reminds us of the body of Jesus that he was willing to sacrifice for us because he loved us. And the blood of Jesus he was willing to shed because that's what it meant for him to lead us and to love us. And so we're gonna sing a song. And as we sing the song, one of you, you can go get the Lord's Supper supplies and bring them back. The rest of you, I want you to prepare your heart as we talk about the one who was sent to save us. Now, the Lord's Supper is only for believers. And so I want you, if you're a believer, to get ready to take it. And when we're done worshiping the Lord, Pastor Ender's gonna come up here and he's gonna lead us in the taking of the Lord's Supper. But right now, let's worship the King. He deserves it.